Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Lucia Halsether and I will explore a central question asked by our guest. What do we need to learn to save the planet? With us is Frerean Echopedagogue, Dr. Greg Misazic, Associate Professor on the Faculty of Education at Beijing Normal University in the Institute of Education Theories. He serves as Associate Director of the Paulo Freire Institute at UCLA with Director Professor Carlos Antonio Torres, whom we also interviewed on this podcast. Dr. Misazic works in the areas of global citizen education with a focus on ecopedagogies, planetary citizenships, both plural, and the connections between the environment and social problems and solutions. Greg is the author of two books, Educating the Global Environmental Citizen, Understanding Ecopedagogy in Local and Global Context from 2018, and Ecopedagogy, Critical Environmental Teaching for Planetary Justice and Global Sustainable Development from 2020, along with numerous articles on place-based environmental education. Be on the lookout for two forthcoming books, a co-edited volume with Aki A. Opti, Palgrave Handbook on Critical Theories of Education, and several articles and co-edited journal volumes. To delve deeper into Greg's work, visit his website at ecopedagogy.com. Greg is also an accomplished photographer, and you can view his photos from his many travels on his website. Welcome, Greg, to Nothing Never Happens. First question. Yes. For our listeners who haven't heard, who haven't heard of ecopedagogy or who are less familiar with the theories, we're wondering if you could just kind of give us a, give us a rundown of kind of what, what is this term? Why does it matter? Um, and what are you doing with it? Great, great question and very complex question. Um, I think the main thing is that ecopedagogy is grounded in this aspect of critical theories. Uh, I would say it's grounded in the work of Paula Freire. So one of the big questions is this teaching to have students read and reread what the problems really are. What are the root problems of, of environmental violence? And environmental violence is, is a continuum. It's between us you know, over Zoom using our computers, using electricity to, you know, mountaintop removal um, that, um, that I've done some research on. So it's, it's this aspect of what are the connections and disconnections between environmental violence and social violence, how they taught and how they not taught. And importantly, especially from Freire, is what are the politics of them not being taught, this disconnection? How do people benefit from environmental violence. We all benefit in different ways, but who suffers from that uh, mostly? That, that, that who struggles from you know, our use of environment, of say coal, of nuclear energy, of you know, all, all of the things that provides us heat, electricity, technologies, all these different things. So it's this aspect of you know, trying to 
teach in a way that students question and re-question, or Ferry would say read and reread the world as part of the rest of earth. So it's this aspect of rather than teaching in a way that they just understand environmental issues as superficial, you know, there's this policy, we have to change this policy, rather than going more into the depth of why does the policy exist? Who benefits from the policy locally to globally and things like that? And then there's, there's a lot more to be said, but there's this aspect of also, um, there's disparities between who suffers more than others from environmental devastation. And, and from critical pedagogy, really from a bottom up perspective, how do people um, understand environmental issues from those who suffer the most? And I give the example in my book, and this came from my uh, discussion with my students in Beijing, this aspect that myself as a professor is gonna is going to suffer more, less from environmental pollution in Beijing because I don't have to go into work every day. I can afford air filters. I, um, I, I live in, in, a, in an apartment that's well insulated compared to say a migrant worker who's working outside 12, 14, 16 plus hours a day. And what, also what are the histories behind that, you know, being, male, white, Western? What are all those different aspects of coloniality, of racism, of, of heteronormativity, all these different aspects? So it's really trying to delve into what are the issues of environmental problems in a deeper level to solve the, the issues rather than in a superficial level. And there's a lot more to be said, but it's this dialogue, reading and rereading, uh, critically looking at different aspects and all these different aspects um, that we'll probably discuss a little bit uh, in this podcast. Yeah, I want to get back to the issues of, of globalism and, and development later. But first, mm -hmm. uh, to follow up on Lucia's question, you and Carlos Alberto Torres, whom we've also had on this podcast, mm -hmm. um, co-wrote an imaginary but really creative chapter five to Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and you named mm -hmm. it eco-pedagogy um, and made mm -hmm. a very good argument as to why that would have been the next chapter Freire would have written and his own history of, of environmental interest. Um, mm -hmm. So could you tell us uh, how the uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of, of that chapter, which was a really bold thing to do, but a really helpful thing to do, I think, um, and his focus on the environment as, as oppressed, because, um, you know, pedagogy of the oppressed is more, you know, anthropocentric, right? And this is more holistic in terms of um, creating, you know, including the whole world in um, his pedagogy of the oppressed. Yeah, a very good question. And I, I think that was one of the most difficult chapters I've written. And Carla said it was one of the most difficult he's written just because of this, this weight of, of trying to write something that we know that Furry wouldn't write exactly. When would it be placed into? Would it be placed into the time of when Pedagogy of the Press was first written? Um, currently, um, when he passed away in 1997, all these different issues. And we wrote that chapter in this way that Furry first had Pedagogy of the Press it was three chapters and the publisher encouraged him to write a fourth chapter. 
um, that talked about more of educational leadership and all these different things in the current, uh, in, in the current world. Um, so what, what, and the discussion that, that came out of it too was that Freire, and this is kind of a contested argument that Freire's next book was supposed to be on eco-pedagogy. Some people vehemently argue that it was supposed to be on neoliberalism. It could be on both because they're very much connected. Um, but this came from a discussion that Carlos and uh, Mr. Godoy had at Ferry's house, and Ferry told him next next thing that he wants to do was on right on uh, the environment, um, not specifically saying eco pedagogy, but you know that aspect. So, so what we try to do is write a fifth chapter of pedagogy, of the press, and we I think we had. A, an amazing amount of footnotes. I forget how much it was, probably 50 or 60 footnotes, just trying to go back to what Freire said in Pedagogy of the Press, but also in its later work, especially Pedagogy of Indignation, where a lot of the things that he was gonna write about on eco-pedagogy was left on his desk. Uh, in a discussion with Godotti in Brazil, he was telling me that the, the notes were actually on his desk. And, it's this connection that a lot of people see Freire as anti-environmentalist. Um, there's, a, there's a book out there from a famous um, environmental educator, Chet Bowers, that talks about, I forget the exact title, um, but it's, uh, it has Freire as anti-environmental. And there's been critiques written about it by uh, some of our, some of my close friends and colleagues like Peter McLaren and Michael Apple. Um, and others, Wayne All wrote with Michael Apple on it. But a lot of times people only read Pedagogy of the Press and only see, I think in the superficial reading, what Freire was saying, like he said, was anthropocentric. Um, first is this aspect that Freire talked about how humans are not like the rest of animals. But what was Freire saying there? Freire was saying that we have histories, that we are able to dream and act upon those dreams that we have self-reflectivity compared to the, the rest of beings on earth. So, it, so, so it's this aspect that he wasn't dismissing or devaluing the rest of nature. He was saying more that we have a responsibility and there's different wording for this, but a lot of my writing goes into, and also Godotis and many others talk about development versus adaptation, where we're the only ones that reflect reflect upon uh, histories, our dreams, our interactions that to look into the future, but we're also the agent of unsustainability. And the second thing that people say is that, well, Furry's anti-environmental because it was constant transformation, this constant transforming the world, transforming someone's self, but he didn't write it in a lot of um, Chet Bauer's books Book and also others talk about it as though he just wanted to change everything without contextual um, contextualization, um, cultural contextualization, environmental contextualization, and things like that. So what we try to do is use Freire's words, especially in Pedagogy of Indignation and others, talking about what a chapter five would might look like or might be framed as. We wrote it as a full chapter, but we wrote half of the R chapter. It's hard because the word in the fifth chapter and then R chapter. Um, we wrote the fifth chapter in our chapter. The first half of it was very much talking about these aren't exactly what Fred would talk about or wouldn't exactly word it as 
as such. But these were the different ideas that we gathered from both his writings and also his discussions with Carlos, Mr. Godotti, and some others too upon, upon the subject. So, so I think a lot of people who think of Ferry as anti-environmentalist or strictly anthropocentric, it's only reading and shallowly reading Pedagogy of the Press, which was something that he wrote and reinvented. And they take away, away that aspect of reinvention of his work and need for reinvention. So that's kind of what the chapter discusses is this aspect of what Ferry would write about on Nico Pedagogy from our analysis, but realizing there's a lot of, um, uh, I don't know how to say it, there's a lot of things that we probably got wrong too. Well, I love this one sentence. Um, however, <clears throat> that you're writing as you and Carlos are writing as Ferry. However, Earth as a holistic being of which the world is a part must also be considered a being. Mm. I think that kind of summarizes um, the approach. Yeah, and and that comes a lot from Godotti's um, work from planetary citizenship. This aspect that um, that we have many citizenships and that planetary citizenship means that Earth itself is a citizen. And if Earth itself is a citizen, it's the most oppressed, voiceless citizen also. And that's coming from um, a discussion had with Godotti in San Paulo. Um, so it's this aspect that how can we distance ourselves from the rest of nature? How how do we teach and learn and live in, in a way that we distance ourselves from the rest of na nature rather than being part of nature. Well, maybe this is a good moment to ask you for some mm -hmm. examples of kind of what this what this teaching looks like in concrete mm -hmm. terms. If you have stories about um, classes you've done or l learnings that you've had um, or um, just sort of moments that, that can kind of help us and our listeners kind of imagine this with you. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll just talk about uh, just briefly about my, some of my, I teach a course in eco-pedagogy, but throughout all my courses, um, there's always a week or two focused on eco-pedagogy, but also throughout the course. And I think a lot of it is coming from this aspect of dialogue, you know, that Furry talks about democratic dialogue, but authentic dialogue too. Not that the student just says what the professor wants and realizing those power dynamics between the teacher and the student, but that having a safe space to really discuss aspects. And I think some of the, I mean, my classes at Beijing Normal University are extremely um, diverse. I mostly have international students and most of them are coming from different areas of Africa, of the Middle East, um, from Southeast Asia, from Eastern Europe, but also some from North, North America, South America, and everywhere else. Um, in Asia and many other places. Um, but I think that the discussions that we have, I've always talk, I always tell my students and sometimes they're very worried um, that when I say, you know, much like bell hooks, you know, the lecture is just the, the, the beginnings of the discussion of, of the teacher that I won't teach that much. Um, and that a lot of times have the students read a lot of a lot of the different materials, bring up some of the key points and have them present on the reading, the thoughts, the ideas. And I think it, we have some wonderful discussions. 
especially in such a diverse classroom. It's this aspect of, like many of my students are coming from the global south, a lot of the things that might be pro might be more difficult to speak about in the United States, uh, how, how I've experienced it sometimes, this aspect of coloniality of, of different, um, you know, Southern and Northern epistemologies, of racism, of globalization is much more felt by them more directly than many times when I'm talking to students in, in, in the West. So, so I think a lot of this aspect is, you know, these rich discussions that, 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 that I've, I've had with students. And also, you know, this aspect that, you know, and it takes, sometimes it takes a few weeks is this aspect that very much can argue against what I'm saying, against what I wrote, against the authors, you know, because there is a lot of hypocrisy. You know, there is a lot of this aspect that, you know, um, especially coming from the West, it's this aspect of, you know, it's so much of environmental education or environmentalism is this aspect of, you know, this authority, this top-down authority of telling what a different, you know, population should do, what an individual should do without really understanding, you know, a lot of people are just trying to survive. And where are, you know, where are all the, the oppressions coming from? Where are all the environmental violence happening? And, you know, this aspect of a lot of environmental education or education overall is too much a historical. This aspect that, you know, the reasons why there's power structures in society, why there's, there's um, um, you know, why there's different areas of the world that are less powerful, that have, you know, not as good quality education and quality can be very problematic, I'm air quoting that, um, is the histories of, you know, coloniality, of racism. And that goes into this aspect of eco-racism, eco-feminism, all these different aspects. And for a lot of the students, you know, and even traveling around, uh, around the world before COVID, um, you know, it's those deep discussions and really trying to understand, you know, beyond the theorizing, beyond, you know, I use a lot of theories in my work. Um, some of my students aren't too happy about that. But I, a lot of the examples that I give, especially in the class and with dialogue, I, I think that that's where the true understanding is. And I think there's a lot more to be said, but I think, you know, that, that need for a safe learning space, this, this need for students to be able to express how they truly feel because if environmental um, education is supposed to lead to praxis, if students are just saying what they what the professor wants them to say to get good grades, to get a letter of recommendation, and so on and so on, you know we're failing, and that's the same in higher education, but also throughout education. Yeah, you just mentioned praxis. Uh, could you talk about that? It's a it's a pretty key word in in Fourierian uh, theory. Uh, how does it relate to eco-pedagogy and I guess eco-pedagogy is plural and yeah. it's into your use of plurals that I think is, is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I think a lot of, a lot of my work I, I've done is coming from, there's a wonderful book by Masogodori um, that isn't well, too well known in, 
in the, in the Western Lightland, but very well known in Brazil, um, Pedagogy of Praxis. It's a wonderful book. It's a tough read, but a very worthwhile read. And a lot of it talks about this aspect of praxis is a bottom-up approach. You know, this aspect of really ending this aspect that, you know, I'm an expert, I have a PhD, and I'm going to go in somewhere, and I'm going to tell them exactly what to do to solve their problems. People, um, there's many examples that Ferry gives and Carlos gives and many others that, you know, Ferry goes into a community, they ask him, well, what should we do? And Ferry was, I don't know, I don't know what you should do. I can listen to your stories. I can give you different ideas on how things worked in other contexts, um, you know, can compare and contrast, but it must come from a bottom-up approach. So I think that that's one of the key aspects of practice, this aspect of a bottom-up approach. When we do research, you know, truly listening to the participants, the voices, rather than coming in with this idea of a solution and then fitting everything in. Also, it's this aspect of, you know, understanding oppressions, understanding environmental violence, the connections to um, social violence, um, coming from the people, from the populations who are most oppressed and coming from their own epistemologies, their ways of knowing, thinking, understanding, experiences, all these different things. And also, um, I think the key thing with praxis is this aspect that it's this gap between, you know, what is currently happening and what do you want the world to be? Or what should a sustainable earth be with a world within that? And how do you get to that is this aspect of, Freire would say, generative themes, this aspect of class discussions on discussing, you know, what what is the current world situation, the current context, why is it happening? And what is the utopia, this aspect of education and utopia, this aspect of how do you think the world should be? And with eco-pedagogy, that's very much linked and grounded in this planetary sustainability. So praxis, I would say, and this is coming from a lot of Godotti's words, and I have a few graphics on this, but um, I'm not sure, I've used them a lot, but I'm not sure how, um, how others think about them. Um, it's this aspect of this narrowing between what is currently happening and what is a better world, what is a more sustainable earth and things like that. And praxis is this aspect of how can you teach in a way that students have more self-reflectivity true self-reflectivity. So not just reflectivity that I'm gonna just regurgitate my own understandings and epistemologies and my own theories and understandings, but truly understanding others. Borventura de Sousa Santos and others talks about this aspect that self-reflection is very much not uh, an empowering device because a lot of times we just regurgitate the same ideas, the same theories the same epistemologies. And he talks about through epistemologies of the North that's grounded in coloniality, patriarchy, and capitalism. But how can, how, how can we have this aspect of reflectivity through dialogue, diverse, rich dialogue, both in person, but also through what we read, what we listen to, what we watch, all these different aspects of how do we understand 
anything. And that's a lot of the things that I discussed too, is that when I talk about education, it's not just, you know, in a classroom, formal class, formal education, but formal, informal, and non-formal. I often ask my students, do you learn more from teachers like myself who's blabbing on and on? Or, you know, how you go back to your dorm rooms and talk about it. What you learn from your families, what you learn from friends, advertisements, movies, internet, all these different things. So how can you have reflectivity through diverse and also transdisciplinary aspects of, of reflection on why is something happening? How should, how should it be changed? And how can we narrow between what we, what the world is currently environmentally and what the world should be? And this essence of grounding of planetary sustainability beyond anthropocentrism, so beyond, you know, um, uh, humans, um, what's a good way of saying this, of, of, of humans' interests and humans' well-being that beyond ourselves you know, that, that we don't dominate nature just for our own well-being. One of the questions I, I feel like that kind of comes from this is, you we're talking a lot about sort of self-reflection, self-criticism that happens in the context of a kind of collective where people can challenge each other and reflect back to one another. Um, I feel like there's probably a listener out there who's like, I teach a sustainability class. There's a business school that teaches business and environmental sustainability. Um, we're making, you know, my student started an NGO and they've like helped people stop drinking so much bottled water and built a well somewhere. Um, is that bad? And I'm I'm saying this a little bit facetiously, but I want to I want to like play out just in case. I mean, some of our listeners may sort of hypothetically know sort of a critique of that, but like it's helpful to have the vocabulary. I think. Yeah, yeah, very very good question. Um, and and I think a lot of my students in the past have, have talked about this. Um, and a lot of times I'll, I'll skip over. You know, the a lot of people think of NGOs as one all wonderful and things like that, and they do a lot of good work, but. There's, there's a lot of um, issues uh, with them themselves, such as, you know, who do they speak with? Is, you know, do they actually speak to the people that, that they're trying to help, for example? So I, I think the aspect with that is that, I mean, I, I think those are overall, and it, it's all contextual, is are very good programs. The, the, the issue that I, I have with many of the programs is that, especially when we're talking about business schools, and if they're only getting classes within business schools, you know, those deeper issues that it's beyond this aspect of, you know, that we can find technological and ways of solving sustainability. Because that brings in a lot of these aspects that, you know, if a profit is part of that, even with an NGO, you know, um, there's all these aspects of donations and all these other different aspects, you know, when you bring in this aspect of profitability, which it can be very, which is not all negative, but it's this aspect of also needing to problematize what's happening beyond, um, you know, being 
a profitable activity of sustainability. It's the same thing as with, I would say, assessment in education. You know, a lot of times we teach things that are easy to teach for. This is from Marope at, at UNESCO talks about this. And, you know, but what's most important in society are the things that are very difficult or impossible to teach for. So, so it's this aspect of, there's many good initiatives of NGOs, there's many good initiatives of sustainability. The issue that, that I have is that it should truly be an interdisciplinary program or transdisciplinary program. This aspect that it has multiple disciplines looking at the different issues, at the different aspects of really delving down about environmental issues and why, and why, why do we go towards either sustainability or unsustainability and who profits from that? Um, that, that truly understanding, well, doing a recycling program is very good, but it's also this aspect that we have to do more than recycling programs also. So is there mechanisms that we think about recycling, but also beyond recycling and beyond recycling within, say, a certain population? And that also sustainability shouldn't be this aspect that it should be only one course, but it should be a holistic aspect that's throughout the entire curriculum. That it's not just in, you know, a lot of times in, in the West, it's a lot of times in the hard sciences. If I have found in Latin America, it's more in the social sciences, but also through the humanities and, and through things like mathematics and engineering. So one of the key things with eco-pedagogy is where sustainability and this aspect of you know de-distancing us from the rest of Earth is grounded in all of education, and how can we teach towards that? So I think that there are good programs, but there's a lot more to be done within the programs, way before someone goes into higher education, and just these different aspects where when we can think about development as not just do we go towards development or environmentalism? But environmentalism is part of development that is inseparable. And right now, um, especially in the United States, we're very far from that. Yeah, that's that theoretical background is really useful. And I'm wondering uh, what what other kind of concrete examples you use in the classroom to help students get at what you call um, post-truth ideologies. Mm -hmm. um, this article on that, that you wrote on that, Countering Post-Truths Through Eco-Pedagogical Literacies, uh, Teaching to Critically Read Development and Sustainable Development. I found this really useful because I, I do a unit in my religion and ecology class uh, on the Coca-Cola company, because it's here in Atlanta, the world of Coca-Cola. Um, and so, and, and also, and there are many U.S. universities who've had um, boycott Coke movements in the past. Um, so do you, is there any kind of concrete example or case studies that you use in your classes to help students unpack um, this, the post-truth ideologies and to um, get at the root causes of oppression and yeah. 
how to problem solve that, you know, from the bottom up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very good question. Coca-Cola is an interesting example. Um, have been to Atlanta many times and been to the Coca-Cola Museum. And I swear, if you go to that um, the museum, you think Coca-Cola has saved the world for for the past hundred years. And th- there are some in- there are some pressures that th- that they've put on different societies and things like that that has been helpful. But um, it's very much glorifying the Coca-Cola history. Um, so. I think, you know, I, I, I'm only going to say his name once because I, I, I try to not tend to say, uh, try to repeat his name. I'll, I'll say it in a different way. But Donald Trump has given an amazing amount of uh, examples uh, for the past uh, four plus years in, in my teaching. Pretty much, you know, it, it's interesting. It, um, this aspect of post-truthism, you know, um, extreme nationalism, xenophobia, things like that. A lot of the things that people have discussed for many years, especially since the 1960s and 70s as you know, hidden curriculum, he, the person who begins with the letter T, he has really brought them out in a very direct and concrete way. And I think throughout my classes, at least in the past four years, and even before he got elected, I promised my students in Beijing, there's no way he would get elected. There's no way, um, looking at the percentages. But later on, it became a, um, a class discussion on how we're in bubbles, in, especially in social media. If you look at my Facebook or, or other, um, I don't use social media that much, but all of them are very much um, not, uh, you know, MAGA-focused. Mag, uh, uh, so all of the things that he talks about or that he's tweeted have been incredible examples. This aspect that, you know, that um, global, that climate change has been invented by China, that, you know, that, that all these different aspects that, that he said about environmentalism and then all, everything that he talks about with, that has been racist and xenophobic and all those different things um, has been excellent examples of aspects of how we have gotten to a point more so that you know the truth no longer matters, that we're no longer truth-seeking. And a lot of people say, well, it's you know part of critical, um, critical theories and it's part of postmodernism that everything's subjective, but there's always this aspect of hoping to go towards truth where post-truthism is totally opposite. It's just going towards, um, you know, what is most favorable for someone to profit from. For example, that's one example. And there's a wonderful book by Henry, um, Henry um, Frankfurt called On Bullshit. Which was written, he's from Princeton and he, he, he wrote it, you know, I think in the 1980s initially. And it really talks about this aspect of even though post truthism is an extreme aspect of that, you know, how can we have a way that we teach to not just, you know, try to win an argument and trying to find facts in quotations? that align with our own thoughts. And this goes back to self-reflectivity, but this aspect of truly listening to one another. And post-truthism 
is this not only this aspect that you know that, that it's horrible for environmental causes, social justice causes, things like that, but it's also very much decaying our foundation of um, democracy. That we can no longer have a discussion where Foucault and others talk about that we need a basis, a base of truths that we both agree on. Post-truthism is taking that away. That dialogue is no longer, you know, that it's more of winning the argument. I often tell students that it's not that dialogue is different from debate, where debate is is this pushing of 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 this one idea at all costs for everyone to agreement. But it's this aspect of listening. It's the same thing as Miles Horton in the south of the United States talked about the difference between social movements and education, where social movements can be very positive, but still going towards one sort of way of thinking where education isn't, is, you know, teach, trying to teach students how, you know, different ways of thinking, of listening, of dialogue, of all these different things. But a lot of education isn't like that. So with post-truthism, I think the aspect of trying to have an education where people can critically read and reread social media, the internet, and so on and so on, to really delve into what are truths and what are falsities, or going uh, going towards truth, that's underlining sustainability and social justice, environmental justice. That's a key thing um, that must be embedded in all of education and especially environmental education. But there's also this question about, you know, is there social justice education and then environmental justice education? Should they not be the same thing and things like that? But um, that's a little bit more of a discussion on, on that point. One of the things I think of is that for my, um, the research for my first book was about like neoliberal capitalist um, development um, or ways to make global capitalism quote more responsible and sort of the people who self-described as doing that. And one of the things I always noticed when I was like being an ethnographer in classes at the Yale School of Management is how these um, global north or from the global south, but very, very elite in terms of their kind of family background students who are always talking about how poor people around the world like needed better sanitation practices or hygiene practices or population control to stop climate change. And it all sounded one, very eugenic to me. And also, um, also just like really like daft to the forms of environmental justice practices that are happening in so many communities. Um, you know, like you, you know, to travel to Guatemala, for example, and see it's like the 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 people who have a problem with like waste management, so to speak, are the tourists, um, not necessarily the local communities. And so, anyway, I that I thought of that as you know, in the last two questions, as you were talking about the need for self reflection and contextual knowledge, and not um, reifying this idea of elite expertise when we think about um, sort of environmental justice and what what a sort of pedagogy or movement would look like. And so I'm wondering if, you know, on your kind of 
travels and your teaching and your hearing from others and being a learner as well as a teacher in recent years, and maybe this is connected to COVID or maybe it's not, um, what have you, what have you seen that's been influencing your teaching on ecology or sustainability? And um, do you see any like movement horizons emerging um, that have, that have just struck you? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And, and the, the research and the, you know, the work for goodwill and environmentalism can be very, very much problematic. They, you know, there's a saying, um, you know, who benefits from research a lot of times are the researchers and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of questions about how can we truly give back to the communities? Um, and also a bottom-up up approach to these different aspects. So I, just very shortly, one of my... Uh, one of my uh, st uh, professors at UCLA, um, who was in urban planning, he told a story on how a group of people who, you know, volunteered their time, went to a community, they saw that the women was carrying water, you know, hours, three hours, I'm going to get some of the details wrong, four hours a day from this, from this river. So the people thought, you know, uh, well, what we're going to do is build a canal and then they build a canal and then they, you know, they, they, they thank themselves and the community, you know, says that they thank them. Um, they go back, they finish their degrees, they get the promotions, whatever. They go back to the community and they're not using the canal. Um, and it's because they never talked to the, the community where when they, once they talked to the community, they were, and especially the, 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 the females of the communities, um, they said, well, that, that time of gathering water was you know when we bonded with each other when we you know uh, talked with one another and and there was also you know not so happy stories about you know getting away from you know spousal abuse and all these other aspects but they never talked to the actual community on what they really needed and I, I think this you know in in my travels it, it, it's interesting um, before COVID um, you know th there's a lot of really great programs and ideas and understandings. And in China too, that's so much going on that's not being said by the press. And, you know, I think a lot of times, especially students, people think of, you know, think of the Chinese student as some something very much different from what they actually are. They think that they're, you know, more robots and things like that. But I, I've had so many great experiences just of students and people really caring about, you know, trying to um, fix, to, to have environmental sustainability. And it also, I think in, in my own experiences, um, very much have really seen this aspect of what happens when you, you don't really have a bottom-up approach, when you just go in and think that you're the expert and go in and talk. And, I, and it's interesting, a lot of times when I do research um, and some other work, a lot of times I very much get a, you know, he's from the United States, male, white, all these different aspects. And, you know, it takes a while to get somewhat of that trust because there's been so many people going in, especially, you know, a lot of my work and a lot of my wife's work has been in Latin America where, you know, there a lot of times it's over, they're over-researched and they can't, really see a lot of times the benefit of the research other than, you know, the student and the professor getting their grant money, getting their tenure, students getting their degrees and things like that. And the key thing is how can 
we do research that truly goes back into the community. And just through discussions and through different ways of research and just, you know, informal and, and formal discussions, you know, you know, what are the different challenges? You know, I think too many people, especially in the United States, I, I say United States because I'm most, you know, I grew up there and, and I'm most familiar. I think too many people think that, you know, why don't these different countries, these different populations fix environmental issues? Why don't they just do A, B, and C, and D, and then all these wonderful things can happen? And I always tell my research, my students, you know, the worst thing that this, this not a binary good and bad research, but whenever research says you do A, B, and C, and then D is gonna happen, run away. You know, it's not always that easy. The world is messy. And I think, and I think what really needs to be done a lot of times, and my students ask this, and other people have asked, you know, we're very much aligned with your ideas, your understandings, your, you know, your, your ways of talking about eco-pedagogy, but what really needs to be done is also this teaching and praxis that's coming from the West. And I think just recognizing, I, I think travel has allowed me and also, you know, with research and even just a different ways of, you know, how are people truly affected? And especially with things like, you know, ecotourism where, you know, everyone thinks that's a wonderful idea all the time, but it's usually the, the tourists who are making the place unsustainable and things like that. And we see that throughout the world. So what, what is that balance? It's, it's always messy between, you know, you want people to go out and experience nature so they become more environmental and also all of the other aspects of that. But they're also, you know, destroying part of the environment. So, you know, there's all those really difficult um, discussions and there's no clear solution. But what eco-pedagogy tries to do is this aspect of beginning to dialogue about them, to truly understand, you know, multiple perspectives of, you know, why isn't ecotourism working? Why is, you know, why is South Africa like it, like it is because of histories of gold and diamonds? You know, what would South, I just had this discussion two years ago when I was in Johannesburg, you know, what would, what would South Africa look like without gold and diamonds and things like that? Same thing as Albert Memmi says, you know, we don't know what the world would be with coloniality, but we certainly know what the world is because of it. So it's all these, there's no simple solution, which can be very frustrating. But a lot of times, you know, um, different entities, you know, prey upon that with this aspect of fatalistic education. And you know, I, I went off a little bit on the question, but that's one of the key aspects too. It's trying to figure out, you know, it isn't simple solutions. You know, you through travels or reading or, you know, watching different videos and things, you realize there's no simple solutions. But once we don't even know what the problems are, it's impossible to solve them at all. And this aspect of utopia isn't, isn't this, you know, that a lot of times we won't reach that, but it's a way of guiding us towards solutions through praxis and all these different aspects. Well, um, I'm wondering to follow up on that, what, what have you learned uh, during and, and by and through COVID-19 um, for your um, teaching and um, teaching about planetary citizenship and, and eco-pedagogies and how does that, um, what you've done during, during COVID to pivot and and, and change your 
your classes. How is that influencing your future direction, not just as a teacher and an activist teacher, but a researcher? Well, I, I think COVID-19, I've written a, a couple of things on this. Um, you know, it's this aspect that how can we truly utilize a horrific um, and ongoing um, effects of COVID-19? And that how can we truly learn that and use the lessons from COVID-19 that, you know, what happens we, when we ignore the rest of nature? That, you know, this, this aspect that, you know, that the rest, that the world is subjective and is transformable, but nature, you know, aligns with these aspects of the laws of nature, these aspects, um, and that's just one term for it, but this aspect that it isn't subjective, but it's this aspect that, you know, it isn't, it's adapting rather than developing or developing as consciously developing or depending on who, who um, pulls the strings and stuff like that. So there's power dynamics of that. So I think with COVID-19, what, re what we really need to do is this aspect of how can we use it to give examples of what happens when we say, you know, there isn't a virus and, you know, I'm just gonna go about my daily life, that I'm not gonna wear a mask because you know it doesn't exist, or it's a it's a sign that does uh, you know of me wearing a mask is going against freedom and independence and this political discussions and things like that that has happened in the United States, but also in many parts of the world, especially when you look at Brazil and other other parts. And what what is the devastation of that? The human toll of that. Um, and I think that COVID nineteen can provide very tangible examples of our inseparable connections to the rest of nature. And that, you know, that, that we can't engineer everything out of, you know, especially in a quick way of the effects of, of, of nature. One of the first environmental, uh, one of the first ecopedagogues is Ivan Illich who wrote Deschooling Society. And his, one of his main things is that, and it's, it's a bit gendered on, on how he says it, but unfortunately it was mostly man who, who, uh, who did the devastating effects. He talks about um, classic man and, and modern man, that classic man would challenge nature, but, but he would know the consequences and know that there would be consequences. Modern man thinks that he can challenge and get whatever he wants and needs without needing to even worry about nature. And I think that COVID-19 can provide examples on what is the devastation and when we think that in the way of modern um, man, woman, they, um, all those different aspects. But is that gonna be actually heard or not? Um, I know before our discussion, you were talking about, I believe the, the low um, vaccine rates in, in your state, Tina. Um, and um, there's some things I can't explain. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I, I, I don't understand, um, you know, a lot of my students talk about, um, have many questions, especially in China and my international students, two things that they would talk about was, you know, how did the last president occur and about gun violence? And some things um, have, no, I have no idea to, 
fully explain, although can begin to dialogue about it and try to understand why the dynamics of it. But the same thing with COVID, it's, you know, this aspect that it's not, I wasn't so much wearing a mask for myself, but it's this aspect that I wear the mask so I don't transmit the virus, especially to people who are less vulnerable. And I think that that, that aspect where, especially from neoliberalism that comes from, you know, that the only thing that's valued is the private sphere. Ma, and this comes from Dirk Postma. You know, the neoliberalism is all about the private sphere. What, how do I benefit? Or my private sphere benefits. And that the, that the public sphere doesn't matter unless it affects my private sphere. And how can we, the, the environmentalism is impossible, but so isn't social justice and aspects like that. Because a lot of times I talk, I tell my students, you know, neoliberalism and economics is not the same thing. Neoliberalism is that a certain amount of people, very small percentage of people will continuously benefit where the masses, even if you talk about only economic terms, that they'll continue to um, uh, um, become powerless, become you know, destitute and things like that. And the same thing with, with um, COVID-19, it should have been the responsibility to not spread it, especially from the people who think that they are healthy enough not to get it. And it's the same thing with environment, even though, you know, look outside into San Francisco and clean air and, you know, beautiful city and things like that, you know, where are the resources that built the city that, that you know, has, that brings in the resources that have built my computer and the labor injustices and all these different things, you know, what are the backgrounds behind that? Um, and that's some of the things that I think COVID-19 can be great examples of that, an unfortunate pandemic that is currently continuing. Um, and that that's a lesson in itself to teach people that just because it's better here in the United States that much of the world isn't. But you know how how can we use those 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 experiences of you know what happens when we don't listen to nature, or don't or, or just use post-truthism to just say you know it doesn't exist that it's coming from China that you know that it won't affect me that it, it's uh, to put uh, what is the microchips into the vaccines into our arms and stuff even though we're walking with cell phones all the time so there's all those different things so. Um. <laughs> I'm wondering, um, well, this is kind of our last question, which we usually warn people about, mm -hmm. but um, Greg, what is inspiring you these days? What are, or what is providing you necessary escapism these days? Um, whether that's a book or a show or music or anything. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Um, it's a very difficult question. I figured that you might ask this question because I guess one of those kind of absent-minded professors, I guess, and I just, go from topic to topic is there's so much, at least within the eco-pedagogical stuff, you know, I think some of the current things that I'm, I'm working on or just have been reading on is this aspect of say, post-digitalism, this aspect of, of, you know, how we're so much connected to technologies and information and social media and all these different things. How does that coincide with um, eco-pedagogy? but also social justice and all these different aspects. It's a good book that I'm contributing one chapter to that's on that from uh, Peter Jarndyk and uh, I believe Derek Ford. So I'm reading more about this aspect of technologies and all these different aspects. Um, 
and a lot of times in my work talk about you know you know the like everything else there isn't good or bad technologies a lot of times it's how do we use them what is the audience and things like that a lot of other things is reading on different things about you know um, epistemologies of, of the south and learning about different ways of looking at the earth and world and 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 you know coming from you know poor venture de Soto santos ray win connell and others talking about you know that you know to counter those epistemologies of the North that focus on, you know, say coloniality, patriarchy, and, um, and capitalism. So to, trying to get more into reading and learning about that, not just reading, but also um, videos, which um, I think think are, are amazing. Um, podcasts like this and others, um, maybe not so much myself talking about it, but I, we've had some wonderful people on that I've listened to. Um, so, so that that's kind of what would have been on listening to on or reading upon reading listening watching on eco pedagogy i think one of my my um my pleasures too is a lot of times i i like audiobooks too especially on the different places i'm i'm currently at um i was in japan for 18 months and i would walk around the city late at night a lot of times and just listen to audiobooks and they all would be in the local context, um, so all about um, Japanese history and things like that. But it, it's interesting because whenever you know, now I'm uh, reading stuff about San Francisco history. I leave for Virginia. I'm going to pick another one. But it's interesting how much you can really grab from different histories and different perspectives from um, um, that coincides with eco pedagogy, coincides with social justice, and all these different things. So a lot of times. You know, when I'm in China, I probably have had many audiobooks on that. And you can really see, especially when the last president got elected, you can see that history is really, um, you know, repeating itself a lot of times. Um, and I think a lot of times, too, I mean, one of the things that I really enjoy doing, too, is photography and really try to incorporate nature within a lot of my photography, too. So I think there's a lot of things. That, that I do within eco-pedagogy or within, you know, education for, for uh, social justice and all these different aspects. But I think a lot of them coincide with, 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 with everything, with, with each other and in, in different ways that are sometimes direct, but a lot of times indirect. Um, and I think one of my guilty pleasures is probably watching some really bad reality TV to shut off my mind at the end of the day. And sometimes I can do some work while, while watching some really bad TV um, with my wife, but I tend to not mention that. But you've got it, you've got it, you've you got to name the shows now. It's, you have to, it's required. Oh God, I, you know, probably, I know some of them are really bad. I mean, one of them is, I think um, the, the, the 90 day fiance. <laughs> One, which is which is <laughs> very very bad and things like that and and just um yeah yes some of that well, another another one with actually is really good undateables um my wife got me into this um it, it's about people who have um different abilities and autism and things like that that uh, that that, uh, that they try to find dates between them and stuff and it's really sweet um and things like that and we have some family and friends that um, that have different conditions. So, so it's really helpful for us to understand that. But it's also, 
purely entertainment and things like that, um, entertainment in quotations. So, but um, uh, yeah, can't believe that you guys made me say say that. <laughs> 90 Day Fiance is, yeah. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> yeah, I can't top that. <laughs> Tina, your turn. Well, I'm gonna start high like Greg and then go low. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of uh, books on mediation and facilitation because uh, Greg, our department that Lucia was part of at one point and still is uh, as an alumna, um, we uh, have a dream or a vision of using uh, Ferrean framework for our department. It's a small liberal arts college and a small department, but students and faculty together um, uh, doing curriculum, making decisions, uh, facing lots of challenges. <laughs> and because of the challenges of neoliberal capitalist institutions and patriarchy and other things, <clears throat> we, um, I'm reading things like, ah, I don't know if you can see it with the blur, oh, yeah. because my office is messy, uh, Holding Change, oh. with, uh, Adrian Marie Brown, uh, Holding Change, The Way of Emergent Strategy, Facilitation and Mediation. Uh, it's, it's a womanist, uh, feminist approach, uh, African-American women uh, creating uh, brave and safe spaces out of their wisdom traditions. Um, is this a small collection of that? So I've been reading a lot of things uh, like this to try to get inspired to do work. Our last podcast was with two students um, who were part of writing a decolonizing the curriculum resolution that never, uh, they never got a seat at the table. They're, they're brilliant. Um, and, and so trying to figure out how to counter and deconstruct and all those, those kinds of systems that uh, claim to be for you know, student leadership and careers and, and all, but yet, um, you know, don't share power. Um, so there, that's the, the higher end of things. Um, and I'm reading The Sum of Us uh, by Heather McGee. Everyone should read it. It should be required reading for every, especially white person on the planet. Um, and then, okay, lowbrow. I think I mentioned this before uh, and I had an excuse even though I did watch it before the student did a project on it in my encountering religion class um, last fall, uh, that the uh, the I think I can top ninety day fiance with this almost um, Lucifer, which you know the devil owns a bar in L.A. Well, in the last season, spoiler alert for anyone who is a Lucifer fan, God comes down and God is played by Dennis Hasbert. You know. Um, you're in good hands with Allstate, that guy. <clears throat> he plays a good God. He played a president on 24, the, that show. Um, and God comes down and the angels are sons. It, that, don't make sense of it. Don't ask me to unravel the theological <laughs> threads here. Um, and, and the devil, uh, because God decides to retire, um, there's a battle for who can be God next. Anyway, that's, I've been watching that. It's like a, it's like a, you know, a wreck. You just can't stop looking at it. It's, it's, it's a theological 
you know, implosion. But um, anyway, so I've been watching that. Yeah, that sounds watching. interesting. I, I've, I've watched one or two episodes, I think, on a plane and stuff. But um, but usually my, whenever I'm on a plane, my my uh, my taste goes way down, especially <laughs> if it's a long plane ride and stuff yeah. like that. But it seemed like an uh, entertaining show, at least the two episodes I think they had. Yeah, well. And yeah, my, my plane rides in the past, this, this is like pre-pandemic where I don't have cable, so I watch Veep. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Catch up on That's Veep. funny. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Lucia, you're next. Um, I'm going to keep it. First of all, I just need to say that like we should, you know, no need, no need to call it lowbrow, like popular, <laughs> no popular cultural sources are important. Um resources for reflection and perhaps even edification. Um, so maybe maybe we rebrand our own our own pleasures. I don't know. I can't I, I don't have an argument to make about um, 90 day fiance. However, I will say that you know one of the greatest Marxian cultural historians ever, Michael Denning, um, who I worked with at Yale, has you know, he will sometimes, if you can get him in the right mood, confess his absolute love for rom-coms as like, uh. you know, just like this, like, you know, he, he loves them because they're a, because they're a story that they often involve stories of um, like class, like there, there's like subterranean stories of like class warfare and maybe like overcoming overcoming some sort of like classed uh, antagonism, unfortunately through often heteropatriarchal love, um, but that's always, it's always a rich person marrying a poor person. And so like, what is that? Like, you know, how can a Marxian like reclaim those things? So anyway, that's the, that's the lowbrow in scare quotes thing I'll say, mostly outing mm -hmm. Michael. I don't think he listens <laughs> to this podcast, but maybe, hello, Michael. Um, <laughs> I've been watching the WNBA. That's all I do in the summer. Yeah. I watch the WNBA. I watch every game. If I miss a game, I probably watch it on replay and don't look at the internet until I yeah. have watched it as if it were live. I listen to the podcast on the WNBA. Shout out Windsider. Everybody should listen to the Windsider podcast, download their episodes, move their rankings up. Um, they're fantastic feminist, anti-racist, um, broadcasters who are doing really good work. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what I've been doing. Go Chicago. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Do you play basketball? I used to. I mean, now I play recreationally. Yes. I'll play a pickup game every so often. Mm -hmm. We've talked cool. about we talked about this before. You know, there's always a geek out about basketball, and I'm, <laughs> we're about to go into the Olympic break, though, and you know. Mm -hmm. Screw the U.S. Olympics Committee for being awful and racist um, and uh, cheer for Nigeria instead, which has some great WNBA players representing. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, my advice to our listeners. All right. And also, that, stop the Olympics. The end, which yeah. should not be happening during COVID. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, coming from Japan, this. About three weeks ago, there's a very large concern, to say the least. We've just even heard in the streets and people talking about taxi rides and and all these different. Yeah, it's it, it shouldn't be happening. Yeah. But but oddly enough, it isn't Japan. I didn't realize this until I think I watched John Oliver the other day. 
it's not in uh, Japan's decision making. It's the Olympics one even more so. So mm, wow, oh. that makes it wow. worse. Yeah. 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 Scary time. Okay. With that, I want to thank thank you, Greg, Miss Azik. If I pronounce that correctly, I hope so. Oh, yeah. One of the few people who can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you trained me at the very beginning, right? Um, uh, for being on Nothing Never Happens. Thank you so much for um, being here to converse with us about eco-pedagogies and planetary citizenships, both plural. Right. Thank you for having me. Hi. Thank you. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I want to thank our guest today, Greg Masazic, who talked to us about eco-pedagogies, planetary citizenships, and how to save the planet. Our music today, our theme music, is by Lance Eric Hagen, along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is called Excuses and is produced by Frequency. Our fantastic audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our summer intern is Percy Thompson. On behalf of my co-host, Lucia Holsether and I, thank you for listening and we will see you next month. Thank you.